Hey everyone, my name is Jeff Oaks. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Reunion, and I'm excited to share this message with you today. I love watching movies or reading books that show examples of leadership in the face of adversity. And one of the best examples I've ever seen is the Band of Brothers miniseries uh, that HBO produced uh, several years ago. If you've never watched it before, Band of Brothers follows a real life World War II U.S. Airborne Company as they progress from basic training all the way through their actual battles in the European conflict. And the 101st Airborne Division was known as Easy Company. And when they were in basic training preparing to participate in the D-Day invasion, they were led by a lieutenant named Sobel. On the one hand, Lieutenant Sobel did an excellent job of training his men to understand the chain of command, to learn discipline, and he worked them very hard physically to get into kind of combat conditioning that they would need for the battles ahead. On the other hand, Lieutenant Sobel was a very small-minded man who was threatened by other leaders. He was overly harsh on his troops and sometimes completely unreasonable and obtuse. And it's possible that those negative traits could have been overlooked or at least endured by the men of Easy Company if Lieutenant Sobel had proven to be a confident and capable military leader on the field of battle. During basic training, it became readily obvious to everyone under his command that Lieutenant Sobel was anything but competent. He became flustered under pressure again and again and he led his men directly into ambushes during war exercises. He misread maps. Uh, he had their unit woefully out of position and out of sync together. When the officers under his command provided feedback or any input, he would pull rank and insist that others were at fault for their poor performance as a troop. He even tried to have his next in command court-martialed at one point for an infraction that he had not committed. And it became evident to his fellow officers that Lieutenant Sobel would be a disastrous leader in combat. None of them trusted him with their lives. So they each agreed to sign a request to be reassigned to another company rather than serve under Sobel. That was a gutsy move because it could have resulted in a court-martial for all of them. But so strong was their belief that Lieutenant Sobel was incapable of leading their unit in battle, they were willing to take that risk. Following the wrong leader, especially in military situation, where it means the loss of lives and the failure to meet objectives for any person under that person's command is, um, well, that's problematic, right? If you had a bad leader on the field of battle, that is going to bring about disastrous results. But following the wrong leader in life can also have pretty horrific results. I mean, a bad leader at your workplace, you know, a, a, a bad boss usually equates to a poor workplace environment, low productivity, friction among the coworkers, and mistrust all around. And if you've worked for a boss like that, you know just how caustic that environment can become. A bad leader at school you know, usually equals a poor learning environment and student and teacher dissatisfaction, academic failures and huge difficulties in keeping everybody headed in the right direction with their schooling. 
A bad coach equals a losing team. They're underprepared. They're incapable of making adjustments. There's low morale among the teammates. No one wants to follow a bad leader. It has terrible consequences, which is probably why our culture tends towards individualism. 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 <laughs> We're so wary of following a bad leader that we choose not to follow any leader at all. We're just going to soldier on ourselves, right? I'm going to do it solo. N.T. Wright, who's this author and pastor, he notes in his book, How God Became King, that for those of us in America, our anti-royal democratic heritage makes the idea of living under a king hard to stomach, right? The idea of being ruled or led by someone and we're subservient to them, that's, that's challenging to our sensibilities. We are generally hostile to the idea of authority over us. We've been persuaded by our culture that we can have fulfillment without having to submit to any leadership or authority. So when it comes to the arena of our faith, it's not surprising that as Mark Sayer says, says in his uh, podcast, The Cultural Moment, he says, we want the kingdom without the king. Now, this is church today, right? So you're probably going to expect that I'm going to suggest that, that it's not a bad thing to have a one true leader, right? And I'm you know, always going to be a proponent of Jesus as being that leader. You're right. I believe that he is but let's be honest with ourselves for a moment. We like the notion of Jesus as companion, as rescuer. We're happy to receive his forgiveness and the hope that he provides. We're probably even okay with his serving as our teacher and our guide. But the idea that he must be our sovereign, our Lord and King, that's a little bit more difficult for us to swallow. We live in this culture that is spiritually curious about faith while also being very skeptical of the church. It's an environment that makes it difficult to trust any leader, let alone one who lived 2,000 years ago. We seem to want connection to Jesus, but only connection on our own terms. But here's something that I've heard pastor and author Tim Keller mention several times, and I agree with him. He says, a Jesus of your own creation a Jesus that's a projection of your own desires is really just you. And consequently, that's not a Jesus that can lead you or challenge you or contradict you or change you and transform your life. If Jesus is going to be your leader and my leader, then he has to have his own agency, not one of our design, which leaves us all with a pretty big question. Can we trust Jesus to be a good leader? Can he trust, can we trust where he wants to lead us? And today we're in the second week of this series of messages that we're calling, This is Jesus. We're examining the distinctive traits and characteristics of this one that we have chosen to call Savior. Somehow, this Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter, a man born in obscurity without privilege or power or wealth, altered the course of human history. He turned the world upside down. Countless followers spanning different continents and countries and centuries and culture 
have all chosen to be shaped and led by the person of Jesus, which begs the question, why? Can I trust Jesus to be a good leader? I think that question must have been stirring around as the disciples considered whether they were willing to follow Jesus, because each one of them received a personal invitation from Jesus himself to follow after him. And I can only imagine the inner dialogue that they were having in response to that. We actually read about those invitations in Mark's gospel in chapter one and starting in verse 14. We read, after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother, Andrew, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and they followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, <coughs> excuse me, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The four gospel accounts that we have of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written as the disciples and the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life were actually dying off. These accounts were written down in order to give all of us that came after some access to the real Jesus. Mark was actually the first of the four accounts to be written. Last week, we looked at Jesus' baptism when God said of Jesus, his son in the waters, this is my son, and in him I am well pleased. But this week, we hear Jesus' voice for the very first time. And the very first words he speaks are these, repent, for the kingdom of God is near, and then come and follow me. Now, this calling, this invitation to follow, is pretty unique. In the early Jewish tradition, pupils chose their rabbis. That's how it worked in that culture. Rabbis didn't choose their pupils. If a pupil came to them and said, I want to follow you, they would have the ability to say no. But it was the pupil who sought after the rabbi. So the fact that Jesus is going out and selecting his disciples is unusual. And perhaps that's why they were willing to lay down their nets, walk away from their families to follow Jesus. I can't say for certain, but I do believe Mark is trying to show us that a relationship with Jesus begins not because we've chosen him, but because he has chosen us. Jesus chooses to call people. He calls out to us. And we get to determine our response. But make no mistake, he's the initiator. He will be your leader. And the calling of the 12 disciples is so remarkable because not only are their lives totally changed and transformed by following after Jesus, but the history of the world is totally changed. And there are really two things that make this calling of Jesus distinctive. And we actually find them not in his invitation to the fishermen, but in the two words he spoke earlier in the passage, the words gospel, which means good news, and the word kingdom. 
First, Jesus declares that we must repent and believe the good news, the, the gospel. And this word in the Greek, it's the word evangelon, which is a two-part word, angelon, which is a way of describing news of an event that has happened. And then there's the prefix to that, which is ev or u, which is to mean joyful. So literally, it's news that brings joy. During that time, this word, evangelon, didn't have a religious connotation. It wasn't like a churchy word the way that it is now. It was actually a word that meant something history-making and life-shaping that had occurred. It, It wasn't a term for ordinary daily news. It was used in the coronation of kings or victories in war. So, for instance, when Greece was invaded by Persia, <coughs> excuse me, the Greeks ultimately defeated them. And after that had happened, they sent heralds out into the land to declare this news. And, and they would go to village to village, and they would share evangelon, good news, gospel. Our armies have been victorious in battle. We've won. You're not going to be slaves. You're going to be free. That's what the term gospel meant. Something historical has happened for you that changes your status forever. Embedded into the meaning of that word is the difference between our faith in Jesus and any other pursuit or leader that you could chase after in this world. The essence of most other belief systems is basically just, you know, advice, (laughs) That's maybe an oversimplification, but essentially that's what other belief systems amount to. You know, you should try this instead of that or or avoid doing this and instead do this. And then you'll be okay. That's going to bring your life fulfillment. And this has permutations that have spiderwebbed into every corner of our lives. Choose just the right social media platform, right? This one over here is better. That one over here is terrible. Or choose this dating site as opposed to that one because it's superior. Or don't go to that restaurant or that store. It has bad reviews. Go to this one instead. Choose this over that, that over this. Our culture is obsessed with recommendations and advice on how to live better, smarter, greater. Just take my recommendation. This constant pursuit of the next great thing can be exhausting because it's so fragile and unpredictable. But our faith in Jesus is not the pursuit of good advice. Instead, it's rooted in gospel. The gospel of Jesus is this. What has been done in history for you has the capacity to change your status forever. That's what Jesus has accomplished for you. He died. He was resurrected from the grave. He has the ability to rescue you. The calling of Jesus is to believe the good news. It's a calling toward his grace, which is what makes it so joyful. The gospel is that God accepts you, not on the basis of your goodness or worthiness or how well you followed his advice, but on the basis of Jesus and his worthiness. It's not based on what you've accomplished or failed to accomplish. It's on what he has accomplished for you. 
gospel of Jesus is good news for you and for me. It's what Jesus is calling us toward that is far better than any other pursuit or person we could choose to chase after. But it's not only Jesus' gospel that compels us to follow him. It's also his kingdom. Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. If you go back to the very beginning of creation, right, in Genesis, you find that humanity was created to live in a perfect world in which all relationships were whole. They were complete without any defect. And God was sovereign over that entire environment. But in Genesis 3, we're told that that wholeness was violated because we chose to become sovereign unto ourselves. We chose to be our own kings. We've gone the way of self-centeredness. And when our relationship with God unraveled, all the other relationships unraveled with it because self-centeredness ultimately destroys relationships in that way. And we know this is true. There's nothing that makes a person more miserable to be around than when they are truly self-absorbed, right? When it's all about them and what they want to the exclusion of all else, that is caustic to any relationship. And ultimately, this self-centeredness is at the root of so many of society's problems. Why are there wars or racism or class struggles, or family breakdowns that generally can be traced all the way back to the root, self-absorption, selfishness. When we decided to be our own kings, everything fell apart. What could ever restore or repair all that has been broken? Who could possibly put all of those pieces back together? The good news of God's kingdom is that there is one who is able to lead us to wholeness again. There is a worthy king for us to follow, and his name is Jesus. He came humbly all those years ago to die for us, laid down his life. I mean, what leader does that if they have intentions of only making themselves great or only being about themselves? That's impossible. The act of selflessness, of Jesus' grace and giving his life in exchange for ours shows us the type of, of leader he is. But make no mistake, he will return again in power. And when we choose to come under the leadership of Jesus, there is healing and restoration for all that has been broken down, both, both now as he begins to work through his spirit in us, but eternally speaking, that's true as well. His return will mean the end of fear, the end of suffering, the end of injustice and death and tears. When that occurs, every knee will bow to the one true king, and we will experience the joy of living as we have always longed to live, in wholeness with God and with others. The good news of the kingdom of Jesus is better by far than any other person or leader could offer you. This material world was created by God, and he is going to renew it. That's a promise. And you don't just get to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps to get there. You need Jesus to experience this. So consider this for a moment. 
if the purpose of God's salvation is not an escape from this world and all of its problems, but a renewal of the world and a restoration of its people, then God's agenda is not just bent toward forgiveness of sins and the redemption of mankind. It's also about an end to poverty, end to disease and hunger and racism and all these other ills that have affected us as a people for so long. The invitation of Jesus that we've just read about to these ordinary fishermen changed the course of history in the world up to now, and it will continue to have dramatic repercussions on all of the things that come after. I mean, these guys, they were just following in their father's footsteps, right? The, the 12 apostles were all apprenticing under other people, right? Some of them were tending nets, some of them were tax collectors, some of them just, you know, biding their time. But Jesus saw potential in them, something more. And he called them to join him and move beyond merely getting by and into a life that is thriving and meaningful. He called them to greater purpose. Jesus' invitation is to follow him. And that is a powerful thing. It has the capacity to transform lives. It's changed my life. And I believe it can change yours too. To be called by Jesus, to live out the gospel of grace and a new kingdom is distinctive from any other person or pursuit you could follow. It's the renewal of all things. Jesus invites us to experience all of that with him. His calling to follow didn't end with the 12. He continues to invite us, all of us, to experience the good news of his kingdom both now and forever. Jesus saw God-given value and potential in people that society didn't see or understand. He called them to follow him, which means he sees that same potential in each of us. An ordinary person like me, God sees something in me. He's the leader that's worth following. He sees that in you too. He's calling you to something greater too. So how do we respond? How do you actually follow Jesus? And how do we know if we've correctly discerned where he's leading us? I think those are pretty important questions to answer. So let's start with this. In order to follow Jesus, you have to know him. And just like any other relationship, right? That takes time an intentional investment on our part. The 12 disciples spent three years under his guidance, each and every day. It wasn't just a tutelage where they went to school and came back home. No, it was every moment from sun up to sundown spent with him guiding them and mentoring them. We don't have that luxury, right? Jesus isn't in our midst like he was with them, but we should still choose to spend time learning from him. You can read through the four gospels regularly. These eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life serve as an immeasurable resource for learning about what Jesus taught and how he lived and what he did. But in order to follow Jesus' leadership in my life today, I'm also going to need a way to enter into discernment as a daily spiritual practice to understand where he wants to lead me. Discernment, like grace, is almost always given as a gift. You can't force it. But you can find ways to be open to it 
And I'm not going to give you a formula today or some rigid method that you need to follow. But if you're serious about following after Jesus, that relationship needs to be cultivated with prayer and times of quiet listening and alert awareness. You will need to trust in the goodness of God. That probably seems like a strange starting point, right? It's a bit too simplistic. (coughs) But the truth is, Many of us have difficulty relying on God's goodness toward us, right? Personally speaking, it's it's one thing to have the notion that God is good. It's another that we believe that he's good in his intentions towards me. We believe in the concept generally, but the idea of Jesus being invested in us, particularly for our good, that's hard to trust. To be truly led by Jesus, it will mean believing that his intentions toward me are really deeply good. It's the confidence in knowing that his will for my life is the best thing that could happen to me under any circumstances. He has the best interests in mind for me. I love how Ruth Haley Barton describes it. She says in her book, Sacred Rhythms, it's impossible to be wide open with someone you don't trust, let alone with a God we cannot see and whose ways we don't always understand. So as a bedrock foundational thing, we have to trust in the goodness of Jesus. But we also need the belief that love is our primary occupation. You know, as people who are conditioned to think our way about decisions, you know, I'm going to weigh the pros and cons. I'm going to take the advice and then I'm going to make my choice. We are likely unaccustomed to a way of love that Jesus wants to lead us into. We might think of our daily choices as being about the details of like where we're going to live or where we work or what we choose to eat or who we're going to befriend. But for the follower of Jesus, our decision should always be weighted toward what will allow us to continue following Jesus in the path of love. And there are going to be other factors to consider, but the most important question we can ask ourselves is what does the love of Christ call for in this moment? Can I just confess, it is hard to stay in that place mentally all the time. It takes practice. takes input, honestly, from resources that can help get me there. Because the answer to that question, what does love call for in this moment, will likely require selflessness from me and listening and time and compassion. In other words, it won't always be convenient. Might feel like it's actually very inefficient to live that way. To follow Jesus' lead in the way of love is far more complicated than merely evaluating what's best for me. To love this way will expose us and leave us feeling vulnerable because it's a life without guarantees. There's risk involved. But this is the deepest calling that Christ has placed on us. It's the path he chose to pursue himself. Even though it led him to a cross, a crown of thorns, suffering and death. John 13, one actually describes it this way. John writes, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them until the very end. And if we are serious about pursuing Jesus' leadership daily with our lives, then his love is the standard by which everything about us will be measured. 
Listen, no one wants to follow a bad leader. It has horrific consequences most of the time. But the opposite is also true. Following a good leader can make all the difference for a business or an organization or a team. I mean, when there's a good leader guiding the troops or the team or the workplace, trials and difficulties may still arise, but they can be endured and overcome. That was true of Easy Company. The man who was selected to replace Lieutenant Sobel was a humble leader. His name was Richard Winters. If you watch the miniseries, he is an incredible person to learn about. He was actually the very officer that Lieutenant Sobel tried to have court-martial for a lie prior to D-Day. Winters was all the things that Sobel was not. He was brave. He was decisive. He was selfless. He was wise. And he led the 101st Company through the D-Day invasion and through many battles in the countryside in France, through the Battle of the Bulge, and ultimately to the Eagle's Nest, where Easy Company captured the Nazi stronghold that Hitler had built there. Winters was a good leader, and the troops under his command benefited greatly from serving under him. They did more than merely survive the war. They helped win the war. That's what a good leader does. They lead through challenges and adversity to ultimate victory. And if that's your objective for your life, there is no better leader than Jesus. No one who's more worthy of your life's devotion. My hope is that maybe you're discovering the greatness of Jesus for the first time. And I pray that's an introduction that will transform your life and your future as you begin to follow him. Some of us are maybe discovering Jesus anew. We're seeing him in all of his glory once again and being reminded why we chose to follow after him. And if you have friends who have questions about life or faith or who are interested in why you choose to be a follower of Jesus, this series serves as a great chance to invite them to check out Reunion and learn about who Jesus is. Invite them to come and see him for themselves. Jesus has invited us to experience the good news of his grace, an event in history that has changed our status forever. He's the resurrection and the life. Follow him. Fix your eyes on him. Let Jesus lead you. Let's pray about that. Father, in in this world of choice and advice and options, it's so easy to get distracted by what I want to do or by what someone else wants me to do. It's very hard at times to be able to just allow my allegiance and my devotion to be fixed on Jesus, to let him lead my life. I know there's no other pursuit that can match what he offers. Life, forgiveness, hope, eternity. And it's not as though he's he's been 
a difficult leader to follow. He's a humble, gracious leader. So forgive me for times when I've been distracted by other pursuits. Help us, Father, through your spirit at work in us to fix our eyes on Jesus and let him lead us. We want to follow where you want to take us. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.